This is Ross Coulthard, and you are listening to That UFO Podcast. And now a quick word from our sponsor. I've used Zencaster software for well over two years now and become very fond of not only the technology, but the company and its people too, as they've been with me along my entire journey. The podcasting industry has grown a lot in that time too, with projections showing that by 2030, it'll be worth well over $150 billion. More than 30,000 passionate creators now use Zencaster to create, grow and monetize their podcasts. It's the ideal platform to record, produce and analyze all in one place. Now you can be a part of the journey as Zencaster has announced crowdfunding. From as little as $100, you can join a community of other investors who seek to help Zencaster and independent podcasters succeed. If you're interested in investing in Zencaster, go to wefunder.com slash Zencaster or click the link in my episode description below to claim your slice of the future of podcasting. Hi everyone and welcome back to That UFO Podcast. My name is Andy and it's good to be recording again after what's been about a week or so delay for me. You might not have noticed depending on when you listen to the podcast, but due to some illness in the house and, you know, three young kids and that kind of goes round in a cycle, I've had to have a little bit of a break. So there's been no shows out earlier in the week when I would have liked. So what I've put together for you before I get back into the recording swing of things is a bit of a mishmash of February and March's highlights from some of the guests. There were so many big talking points and highlights for me personally in the last few months from guests such as Terry Lovelace, uh, Bryce Sable, Chris Bledsoe, Ross Coulter, uh, among others. I've picked four of those big clips for you as well. So if there are any interviews you missed out on or passed on that you've not had a chance to listen to yet or weren't sure if it was quite for you, I've got some clips in there. I've got Terry Lovelace talking about some other incidents from Devil's Den that weren't involving him but have eerie missing 411 vibes. I've got Bryce Sable talking about the Clintons and disclosure. Chris Bledsoe elaborates on a story about being taken off planet during a MUFON investigation and finally Ross Coulthard talking about who may be calling the shots when it comes to UFO recovery programs. In the next couple of days there will also be a preview pod dropping for April. I've spent this week getting in touch with some guests who are going to be coming on the podcast in the next month. One of them is one of the Skinwalker Ranch crew that I've not had on before. Fingers crossed and I just need to wait. I can confirm the guest schedule before I can say who it is because I've done that before and then they don't manage to come on. That kind of stuff happens but everyone else is lined up. So with that, I'll announce those names in the preview pod. That's always a short one. Look out for that in a couple of days' time. We will speak soon, and here is Terry Lovelace. I am George Knapp, listening to that UFO podcast and having one hell of a good time. So let's talk about that then, and we'll circle back later to some of those those childhood incidents. Um, of course, you're, you're famous for your book and the event, The Incident at Devil's Den, can you just tell me first, where is the Devil's Den? It sounds very ominous. Uh, and what was it that brought you to being there? You know, you know it is ominous. That, that's the right word to use. Um, I spent six years on active duty in the Air Force. I, I worked as an EMT in an emergency room. And my uh, co-worker and my best friend, uh, Tobias, and I, uh, we were both city kids. I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri. He grew up in Detroit, Michigan. And uh, we worked a midnight shift, 11 p.m. to to 8 a.m. in the morning. And one night he says, you know, he says, hey, man, I got an idea. Let's go camping. And I'm like, camping? You know, what what do I know about camping? I've never been camping in my life. And I knew he'd never been camping in his life. 
And he's like, no, no, think about it. It'd be fun. You know, it'd be out. We'll, we'll be in the outdoors. We'll get some fresh air. It'll be, uh, it'll be a blast. He says, I got the perfect place to go. He spoke with someone who was a fisherman who told him about this place called Devil's Den State Park. And uh, real quick, I did some research on it when I wrote the book in 2017. And Devil's Den, because I wanted to find out where did they get the name Devil? How did that negative, that uh, diabolic connotation get attached to this park? And I uh, went back as far as I could go, and I found that there were two Native American tribes that owned the land. Um, one owned half, the other owned the other half. Um, and I contacted a medicine woman uh, from the Kato, C-A-T-O, Kato uh, tribe in, uh, uh, in northwest Arkansas. I forget the name of the little town. And asked her if she'd talk to me, and she did. And she gave me... Uh, a brief history of Devil's Den as far as their people are concerned. And she told me that as far back as they don't have written, they only have oral traditions, as far back as oral tradition will take them, that Devil's Den State Park has always been cursed ground, that it was a place where they would transit through to get from point A to point B, but they never camped there, never hunted there, never fished there. Um, she said it was cursed ground. I, uh, I then followed up. I had a, a friend with the, who, from University of Michigan in Ann Arbor who had a friend through a connection to the University of Arkansas, uh, and it spoke to the anthropology department and an archaeologist who had done excavations all around the area. And he and his wife work as a team, and, and she told me that they had done excavations all around the area. Uh, but she said it was very unique. Inside Devil's Den, they've never found a single artifact, not a single flint tool, not that evidence of burnt charcoal. There's absolutely no evidence of any human habitation inside that park area. And all around it, there's, there's evidence uh, going back thousands of years. So uh, she said it's, it's a unique place. <laughs> And there have been a lot of people disappear uh, mysteriously from Devil's Den State Park. Um, I can give you two real quick examples to yeah, kind of please. set the stage. One, one happened, the first one I found happened in 1947, and it was a little girl, seven years of age, named Catherine Van Alls, and her family was from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And they took a, a trip in a camper. Uh, shortly after World War II, there was a kind of a camping craze that went through the United States and people were buying these pull behind campers and uh, the family, it was uh, the mother, father, uh, two younger siblings, and then Catherine Van Alst, as I said, age seven. And they drove and they plotted their trip on their way south to El Paso, Texas to spend, they were going to spend two nights in the campgrounds at Devil's Den State Park. So uh, they Got to the campground, have a fine time, get all set up, had a, a, an uneventful night. And then the following morning of their second day, um, the mother is putting breakfast on, on uh, a picnic table and uh, at the camp's campground. And the two boys are running around the camper and uh, the mother looks over and says, boys, where's your sister? 
And they're like, well, she's right here. Well, she wasn't. And they said, we, we swear she was right here. And, you know, mother is annoyed, but not, not too freaked out. She says, go find your sister. So, of course, they, they run to the restrooms and they run to the kiosk in the ranger station. And they're, they're looking all over for their sister. And they come back and they're, they're, they're freaked out. And they're like, we can't, we can't find her. So this commotion gets dad involved and he comes out and uh, he's half panicked. He's like, let's find her. Because this campground is in the middle of very thick forest, extremely thick forest all the way around, high rocky terrain. Uh, it'd be difficult for her to manage. She was in a swimsuit with uh, like flip-flop sandals, and it'd be, uh, it'd be a very difficult terrain for her to get around in. Uh, but they get other campers involved, can't find her, they're calling her name. They get park rangers involved, they're calling her, can't find her. Uh, the search expands. This is a state park, and there is a uh, a federal park on the other side, on the east side, uh, and a larger park uh, called Ozark National Forest. And there were a lot of park rangers assigned there, and they came over. They got involved in this hunt. And then first night passes, no Catherine. Second night passes, and the search is set up to last seven days. On the seventh day, it'll 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 shift from a rescue to a recovery. Uh, and, of course, that'll knock down the urgency and uh, she'll be a lost little girl. On the seventh day, there was a, um, a group of students. There were student volunteers from University of Arkansas who came in by the busloads who were out helping hunt for this little girl. And this um, young man named... Um, Porter Chadwick was his name. Porter Chadwick is walked up on a high elevation, a bluff, uh, and is yelling for Catherine. And this little girl in a swimsuit and sandals walks out from underneath this uh, rock overhang and says, here I am. And he breaks down. He's like, oh, my God, where have you been? And runs over and picks her up. And they were at an elevation of about 760 feet above the campground. And the terrain was so steep and rocky that it's a zigzag uh, switchback trail that you have to walk through to get up there. Uh, no idea how she did that in, in sandals. Uh, so he carries her down to the, to the campground. Little girl's been missing for six nights, seven days. Back at the campground, they have a doctor there. She is 100% hydrated. She has not lost an ounce of weight. According to her mother, her mother said, quote, that her, her hair smelled clean. She had washed it the evening before she went missing. And they asked her, they said, well, you know, Catherine, where have you been? And she said, I don't know. I just heard somebody call my name. And I thought you sent them to get me. And they asked her, how did you get up here? And she said, I don't know. I, I tried to find her. I had no luck. Of course, she may have had a married name. 1947 is a long time ago. Uh, God, I would have loved to have talked to her. Uh, likewise, Porter Chadwick, I couldn't find him either. Um, but it's well documented in our, our newspaper articles, both in the Kansas City Star and the Pittsburgh Press. Uh, 
So it's just an amazing, creepy story. Uh, yeah, and as a father, I'm glad the little girl gets found at the at oh, the end. Um, I, I, got, I can't imagine. Yeah, yeah. It's got so many hallmarks of different classic cases of abduction, but then returning, you know, missing time is assumed within that. And like you say, it's one of those, it's a shame that it was so long ago, the little girls lived a full life, I hope, and it's potentially still with us or passed on at this time. And same with the student who found her. But yeah, and obviously we're going to get on to talk about your case. You said there was a second case as well. I want to know a little bit more though on, on Hillary Clinton. If she had beaten Trump, as everyone sort of expected, you know, other than yeah. Trump supporters and, and they got in from the UK, we were pretty shocked when Trump won. If it had been, you know, sliding doors moment, Hillary gets in, do you think she gets to to make that discovery, that announcement, or do you think it gets obfuscated and hidden away? And can you see it really playing out? I can. Uh, I could also see her being killed, you know. Uh, really? I, well, I mean, yeah. I mean, if it, it depends on how the people that are curating the secret, you know, what how desperate they think it is to keep it not out there. Uh, anything could have happened. It's interesting. I've uh, outside of my UFO stuff, I've written a couple of uh, what if books um, yeah. that have both won uh, the Sidewise Award for Alternate History. One of them was about what if JFK survived Dallas, and the other was what if the Beatles stayed together. So they weren't necessarily UFO uh, books, although both have a UFO connection. JFK supposedly did know something about UFOs and was interested. And certainly the Beatles had John Lennon's uh, UFO sighting back in 1974. But my point is, what I was looking for in those books was a great what if, one where you could see, wow, history would really cleave in a different direction. Well, think about that with Hillary Clinton. I could write a great third book on that if I had the time, where it'd be Hillary Clinton gets in instead of Trump. What happens to the UFO issue? I think that it would have been her intent. It seems clear now it would have been her intent to uh, usher in uh, an era of some extra transparency on the issue. I don't know that she would have, um, I doubt that she would have given every reporter in the nation a hard drive with terabytes of photos or anything, but I think she might have acknowledged um, there are things in the sky. We don't know what they are. Um, I'm looking into it. Um, the, the government's going to look into it and we're all in this together. Uh, she might've said something like that. Um, but I don't know. Uh, Clearly, that was her intent, though. I do think that's her intent. And 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 we both know Steve Bassett, the um, political activist on the UFO issue. He certainly thinks that's the absolute truth. You mentioned uh, previous presidents. So obviously, the Bushes, both were in administration. One of the listeners had sent me over a question I want to try and ask. Um, Bryce, you've previously recounted, this is from Dave Smethurst, um, that a senior politician who was in the Bush cabinet told you when you were younger that the truth about UFOs and others was existentially shocking. Do you often think about what he meant by that? And does that still worry you? Well, I'll tell you, it, it certainly, to do justice to that story would hijack the rest of our time together. So I'd, I'd give you a very short version of it. And, and I guess we kind of move on. Um, prior to, um, Creating Dark Skies, I met with my partner, Brent Friedman, 
And uh, I didn't know him at the time. And he told me a story about when he was an 18 year old and he had been hired to drive uh, a car across the United States to deliver it to someone who was in Reagan's cabinet, uh, who lived in the neighborhood he was at and was a family friend. And that this person um, was uh, the undersecretary of the Navy in the first term and secretary of energy in the second term. And that he told Brent some harrowing things, which I'm just not going to get into right now. It's too long of a story, but suffice it to say, this person felt that his very basis of reality had been challenged, that he had been briefed and the briefing wasn't so good. And I'll just, I'll, I'll just give you the one quote um, he said he cried himself to sleep every night during the briefing period, which apparently was six to eight weeks. And uh, Brent asked him why. And he said, because I have, I have daughters and this is the world they're going to live in. And th- that is kind of existentially disquieting, right? So, I, you know, I, I actually believe that story to be true. I mean, I've looked into it and, and I know Brent's um, – truthfulness. So I think there is a darker side to this. It doesn't mean there isn't a lighter side. I have not heard uh, the lighter side in the same kind of graphic relief that I, I heard about the darker side. Um, I don't know if that, what the question was, um, where am I going with this? Just oh, yeah, um, what, what, what do you think he meant and does it worry you? Which I think you've answered within that. Yeah, okay. yeah. I, I, I just think that this person, and by the way, Ross and I are looking into this story, so you'll hear more about it in the future. And also I'm writing a book right now uh, where I'm going to try to lay out the whole thing because I just think it's part of the historical record now. When we were doing Dark Skies, I didn't think of it that way. I thought, well, that's a great story. Now let's go do a TV series. Um, but now that I'm thinking of this in – an equally journalistic way. I think it's an important part of history that should be preserved. In fact, I urge everyone who's ever seen anything or heard anything, uh, you know, this is the time to write it down. This is the time to, to make sure that the, the historical record for future historians to, to find needs to be as clear as possible. So if you've got a story that never got told, or even if you, it was told, write it down in as much specificity as possible and share it because um, because we obviously know there's a phenomenon and we need to get our, our, our arms around it and figure out what it means to us. I'd like to thank Paperlike for sponsoring this episode. I've had my Paperlike on the iPad now for a few months and wonder already how I ever done without it. One of the biggest differences for me is how much better the iPad screen looks. The reflection without the Paperlike on long train journeys or in the office was pretty bad. But now watching movies and TV shows is a far more pleasant experience. There just isn't that shine bouncing off the screen. Taking notes and writing podcast shows is also transformed. As it feels like it says, I am writing onto paper thanks to the nano dot technology tiny microbeads designed to add superior stroke precision when you drag the apple pencil across the screen perfect for designing your next hobby balloon to be shot down by the u.s military i kid paperlike is perfect for anyone who owns an ipad and an apple pencil it's a must have they really should put it in with ipads i'd love to see them get that kind of deal you do get a set of two when you buy it so you always have the spare it's genuinely made me use my ipad more than i did before so it's given my existing technology a brand new lease of life to pick up your paperlike head over to paperlike.com forward slash that ufo click buy paperlike and select your ipad size so if you're ready to do more with your ipad head over to paperlike.com forward slash that UFO to get started.
one of the stories that's touched on in the book, uh, I spoke to Chase Klutsky um, back in the early days of the podcast in 2020. And at the time, a listener had uh, shared a story with me, which you included within the book. And essentially, Chase and her husband was with her and a few other folks. And you experienced missing time crossing a section of a field that you're you're all well aware should only take a few minutes and it, it takes much longer. During that encounter, the listener asked me, given something they had heard, that you had been taken off planet during that experience. And I wonder if that's something you would confirm if that has ever happened to you or anyone with you. I asked Chase, and at the time she didn't want to comment. Well, I write about Chase in the book and um, uh, a little short. Uh, her husband is a U.S. Naval sub commander, right? Carry secret clearances. He's this big guy. He navigates the world underneath the water and has a watched navigation watched. I mean, high tech thing. And what it was was there's a um, a group of people uh, from a ghost hunting outfit in Wilmington, North Carolina, was in my little hometown where my mother was born and I was kind of reared up. Little town called Saint. My grandfather's buried there. My family's buried. And it's only 20 minutes from where I live now. But Chase calls me on a Sunday night and says, or Monday night, and says, Chris, have you ever heard of St. Paul's? Well, I said, hold on, don't tell me. Yes, I've heard of St. Paul's. I was raised there. I said, but don't tell me. I want to tell you first. So I begin to tell her about Saturday night. I walk outside. I sit down on the patio, got a fire going. And um, I'm laid back, looking straight up at the sky, just meditating. And suddenly two orange orbs appear way up. And they came all the way down to the top of the trees and sat there in the back of my property, hovering over the trees. Two great big orange orbs. When they left, they shot off towards St. Paul's. So I told her this story. And then she tells me about these ghost hunters um, that they had walked out of the house and into the forest and these orange streaks went right over their head. And two hours later, uh, they lost two hours of time. So she asked if I would be interested in investigating it with her because she was coming to our area. And so a week later, I call a friend from NASA. He flies in. Um, for the day, I pick him up, and uh, that's the famous Timothy Taylor you hear Diana Silk talk about. I introduced him to Diana, by the way. She uh, she met him a couple years, three years after I did or so. Um, but we were all there, and, and that night they invited me back for a ghost hunt. They wanted to recreate the thing. So I dropped Tim back off at the airport, and he goes home to Huntsville. I went back over there and met with them, and they did their thing in the house with their EVPs, and I sat outside. I wasn't interested in that. But the where they missed time was behind the house. There's a cabin in the edge of the forest behind, a kind of across the field. So you walk out the back door of this plantation house. There's a big field. Go to the other side of the field, and inside the trees, just in the woods is this cabin. So we go over there and uh, we take off through the forest behind the cabin and 15 minutes walk 
we come out on a power line, a big high tension power line, just just a clear lane. You know, you can see their way a mile. But it's 15 minutes across these heads of woods. But here's the key. Behind that cabin is a ditch. Ten feet from the back steps is a big ditch. So we all had to go in the ditch. It's dry. Trees growing up in it. Thick forest. And then 15 minutes to the power line. So when it was time to go back to the cabin, we made it through the woods, got over there, looked around. And, and on our way back, um, when we started, Pete's like, I'll do the navigation. We need to take this heading. We're going to come right out at the car where the cabin is. So eight of us in that group, I was the number eighth in line. I was in the back. Chase was in front of me. So we were bringing up the tail end. Pete's in the front, guiding. When we get to the ditch, Andy, I'd never seen anything like this, especially when I saw Pete and what it did to him. This guy's six foot five or six, and he's... You know, he's a he's a model Navy SEAL, just a big honking. He's a teddy bear, right? But he's still a very smart guy. So when we got to the ditch and we walked down in the ditch and out on the other side, we walked back out on the power line. There is no ditch near the power line. It's behind that cabin. And when we did that, everybody said, oh, my God. And I didn't, I knew what happened because I was meditating. I was singing a song the whole way across there. And it messed everybody up really bad. And we went, turned around and walked back the other way towards the power line, we thought. And we came to the ditch again and walked through the ditch up to the cabin. And it just blew the whole group's mind. And I told them, I said, we lost 15 minutes of time. Well, and so they went home and they re- they had helmet cams and recording devices and, you know, they had all kinds of equipment. They had started a timer in the car. And she calls me on the following uh, Monday or Tuesday after they reviewed the evidence. And she said, you're never going to believe what happened. I said, yeah, we lost 15 minutes of time. She said, how did you know? I said, because I witnessed it. It takes 15 minutes to go across that head of woods. And one trip across it is when they took us. And um, so anyhow, yeah, I write about this story and there's a lot more to it. And um, yeah, so that's not the only person. I've had scientists from the government lose as much as two hours of time on my property along with me. And I wonder, how many times do you remember potentially being taken off planet? Quite a few. Quite uh, a and few. Do, do any of the others, such as, and I know Chase didn't want to talk about it at the time, um, but any of those scientists or officials, if they have that missing time experience, do any of them recall what happened to them? Or does it tend to be just missing for them? It, it, it tends to mess with their, their memories. They can't remember what happened during that time. And I don't think we ever will know uh, because they have a good way of erasing your memory. And you, We tend to get regressions and all that, hoping you find clues, but um, you can remember bits and pieces of it. 
but it's almost impossible. Like the four hours on the river, I have plain memories about being over Egypt. Of all that night, of the grueling, uh, the, it was just a, it was a, a big thing. It scared us all to death. And four hours seemed like four years in that world. And I have lots of memories, but the, the Egypt, the uh, Temple of Hathor, the pyramids, and the Sphinx, it just reverberates through my brain. And it did from the very beginning. It's, it's a clue, and it's in the book. Well, there are many more stories like that in the book, and obviously I don't want to go through them all because that would defeat the purpose of, of you writing a book. You could have just came on this podcast and told them all. What I'd like to know is, on, and this is from Mike, do you have any idea who specifically might be in charge of this secret UFO recovery program? Mike's under the impression that someone or one individual group is calling the shots. Is that your understanding, or is this spread over a larger area? I'm going to use a word. Actually, I'm going to use two words. Group K. Remember that. Group K. And I hope it's causing a minor coronary infarction for somebody in the Pentagon right now. That's all I'm going to say. But that group is very important. If there is an organization that is gatekeeping, and if there is, and I suspect there is, that is gatekeeping access to information on UAPs, possibly crash retrievals, and possibly reverse engineering programs, a good starting point is the Special Access Program Oversight Committee membership of the United States Defence Department, and they're listed members. I've approached a few of them myself over the years to no great shakes. Another one is, as well as the SAPOC, there's the SRG, the Senior Review Group. And these are the people who review the most sensitive secrets in the US military the waived, unacknowledged special access programs. If anyone knows, they do. And look, frankly, there's a hell of a lot that's on the public record. I I just noticed today, for example, that um, uh, it was flying around social media that Eric Davis, God bless him, yet again, Jacques Vallée's diaries have provided more information about an incident where Jacques was informed by Hal Putoff, Eric Davis's then boss at the time, that Eric had met no no less than the former president, George Bush Sr., and that Bush was giving Eric advice about the um, uh, intelligence community. And Eric, not unsurprisingly, asked questions about General Corso. Could Corso have been mistaken in dealing with the material he was handling? Could that have been Nazi hardware, Eric asked George Bush Sr.? Impossible, replied Bush. He then remembered General Trudeau, who showed interest. Uh, he, he asked, um, uh, okay, we'll move on. He asked about the Holloman film, which is the alleged landing of an alien spacecraft at the Holloman Air Force Base, which frankly I've always thought was just a specious story. And um, the former president was aware of it. Was it a training film, a special ops exercise? No, George Bush Sr. replied. It was the real thing. There was a secret project and the security was obscene. 
Now, little tidbits like that appear in Jacques Vallée's Forbidden Science Diaries time and time again. Um, there was a mention just the other day of a former um, senior member of the Government Accounting Office that was involved in an audit investigation that allegedly uncovered monies leading to the program. I think his name was General Bowder from memory. There are trails to follow. And if I was a member of that gatekeeper group who are hiding the evidence that a lot of people suspect that they are hiding, I'd be getting very nervous right now because the Congress has mandated that this information be provided to the Congress through ARO. And the stipulation is that if it hasn't been properly accounted for through the normal oversight procedures to the Congress, it has to be reported within a very short period of time. I think the time is 72 hours to those oversight committees. And I just wonder whether that mandate has been triggered yet because, boy, I'm hearing some amazing stuff from sources, including sources who've told me that they've approached the Congress with information about the program. And I'm just hoping people are being named and shamed Because even if there is, let's just hypothetically assume, Andy, that there's, say, a a presidential executive order that mandated all of this be kept secret right back in, say, I don't know, 1947, perhaps. Um, Let's just say that that's the case. Is it legal? Has anybody ever really tested the legality of such a, uh, a declaration? Why haven't presidents been briefed? And moreover, why was President Obama briefed post his presidency and why has his attitude hardened to suggesting that there just might be something to this UAP issue? So the, the, the evidence is there. In answer to your, um, your questioner, um, I, I do think that there are an abundance of names that can be pursued and investigated. All the Congress needs to do is call them and they can be called involuntarily. The big issue, my friend, and this is where the pushback's happening, is whether you and I, the general public, will get told about it. Because don't forget that the only thing the legislation does is mandate that proper oversight and accountability be reinstated on every program involved with UAPs. Because there's a clear belief in the legislation. It's quite clear the purpose of the legislation is to bring these UAP programs back within the control and oversight of the proper procedures of Congress. There's no requirement that the public be told. And if I was the US, frankly, mate, I can see there's a bloody good argument. If I've recovered alien technology and I'm in a battle with the Russians and the Chinese to develop, let's say, anti-gravity or propulsion systems or weapons systems, stealth technology, I sure as hell wouldn't be telling the public about it. And that's the issue. Is the Congress going to be told about this? And is there a possibility that if the Congress could get told about it in a secure skiff, we were not? Final question then from Newman, because we're running out of time. Uh, Newman asks, is there any news on evidence of our sensor systems in space having picked up on UAPs? Well, Christopher Mellon wrote a fantastic piece about this about a year and a half ago, which I really commend to people, where he summarised the capabilities of all of the different satellites and all of the different agencies that the um, that the US has. 
Um, I, I started out my research. I, I mean, I knew a guy before he passed called Jeff Richelson, who did a fantastic book that I've got on my shelf that talked about the DSP satellites, the Defence Support Program satellites, that essentially looked for flares of rockets in on the planet below. And um, boy, was my world shook when I received a, a very, very confidential briefing from sources who told me about the technologies that the Geospatial Agency, the National Reconnaissance Agency, the NSA, and the DOD more broadly in, in the United States have got that, that essentially send telemetry data down through Australia's Pine Gap base back to the United States on a, on a secure terminal. It's mind-blowing the capabilities that they've got. They're not just looking at Earth, they're looking out towards space. And don't forget also, my friend, the James Webb Telescope. I mean, wow, you know, you've got a purpose-built platform now on the other side of the moon that is able to look at the universe in ways we've never been able to look at before. It's, it's actually really exciting. And time and time again, people like Christopher Mellon, um, that gentleman whose name momentarily escapes me, who's the uh, former deputy head of the Coast Guard, who um, Jay from Project Unity's had on a few times, Gulladay, I think his name is, he's talked about the importance of um, data held, I think, by the Geospatial Agency and um, the NRO. It's quite clear that there is a vast amount of data. I think the biggest repository of a lot of this data, though, is the Department of Energy. It goes right back to 1947 when the Department of Energy was involved in the um, Los Alamos testing and when a lot of strange objects were coming down in the Nevada desert. And more by accident and historical happenstance by, than by design, um, Los Alamos, the Department of Energy, became, I think, a major point for where a lot of this data went. And it's not a coincidence, my friend, that the Department of Energy is excluded from freedom of information laws. Go figure. That is all for this week's show. Thank you very much for listening. Please remember to leave the podcast a review on your chosen platform. You can like, retweet and subscribe. That would all be very much appreciated. The shows are being uploaded onto YouTube as we speak more and more. You can sign up at patreon.com forward slash that UFO podcast to access shows ad free as well. Please get in touch on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, that UFO podcast. Of course, on Twitter, it's at UFO, U-A-P-A-M. And again, folks, as always, keep looking up. You never know what you might see. It wasn't a tic-tac and not quite a saucer, more like a hubcap designed by Chaucer. A little Baroque and quite steampunk, like Alice was playing bass for the Parliament of Folk. The little fucker hovered right outside of my window, and when I shoved out the screen, he made it an issue. That UFO podcast is sponsored by Zencaster. Zencaster is the all-in-one podcasting platform that allows you to remotely record and produce your show with the highest quality audio and video. All from the main dashboard, you can find a full suite of professional tools to get your show created and published in the easiest way possible. You'll always sound at your best as Zencaster's post-production takes the headache out of audio production, setting your loudness and levels while reducing background noise with one click. Zencaster records video up to 
to 4K to give you the perfect picture quality, whether you're in a shed or a studio. Then Zencaster will distribute your video podcast in crisp 1080p to all video podcast players. The biggest feature for me, folks, is that I get the local file recording from each guest so their audio always comes through as best as it can, regardless of any choppy internet connections. Go to Zencaster.com slash pricing and use code UFO podcast and you'll get 40% off your first three months of Zencaster Professional. I want you to have the same easy experiences I do for all my podcasting and content needs. It's time to share your story.